Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for Friends, some awesome. Back to the show. Uh, there's there's something I need to just address right up front. Some of you have been wondering, hey Luke, how come there's seemingly ubiquitous Johnny Cash references in your sermons? We've heard you uh, play the one on the right is on the left. We've heard you make your band play um, Walk the Line. We've heard you tell the story. And many of you are like, why is this happening? And today, once and for all, I'm going to answer the question of why so much Johnny Cash in my homilies, and it's because of this man, Richard Beck. Welcome back to the show. It's good to be how back. You, it's been a while. How do you feel about, in some ways, uh, taking over? In, in some ways, you're the Somalian pirate saying, I am now the preacher at Westover because you made me do so many Johnny Cash references in my sermons. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take credit for that, I how, guess. Yeah, yeah. How much is that true, though? Is that like, is were you not a Johnny Cash fan before you read the book, or, or, uh, like how much was that? How much was the book an introduction to Johnny Cash for you? Well, uh, as someone might know from the endorsement I wrote of the book, I say I wasn't a Johnny Cash <laughs> fan until I read the book. So thank you for letting my endorsement be so near and dear to your heart. Um, <laughs> literally, I didn't, uh, I knew who he was. I saw the, uh, Joaquin phoenix movie i guess reese witherspoon yeah. was the one who played uh, june right I, so i saw that um my good friend chris dowdy walked out of his uh wedding ceremony to uh ring of fire and so i knew that song and that's basically it that's that's really all i had going for me i didn't know a lot about him either i mean i was the same way before I got. I started really getting into him. Like I think a lot of people know a little bit about Johnny Cash. You know, they know Ring of Fire. They've heard I Walked the Line. They've seen the movie. Um, yeah, but I, I tried to write the book. That uh, it was a hard book to write because I wanted to write the book for somebody who doesn't know anything about Johnny Cash. You don't want to assume too much, but you also don't want to write it in such an introductory, obvious vein that if a hardcore fan picked it up, that they wouldn't be surprised. Learn. Uh, and, and excited about it. And so, yeah, it was an interesting trying to thread that needle between the hardcore fan that'll pick it up and the first time Johnny Cash fan picking up and everybody kind of being real pleased with it. It was a challenge. Yeah. And between the two of us, there's a lot of Johnny Cash feel with us. I mean, you obviously spend a lot of time in prisons. I wear a black shirt most days that are not <laughs> on Sunday. Every day but Sunday, I wear a black shirt. And so between the two of us, we're basically Johnny Cash. Exactly. And yeah, my yeah. dad has told me that He's gone into your office and you were like strumming on your guitar a Johnny Cash song. I think that's right. Or you're playing it on your something. But he said, yeah, that makes sense for him to write the book. Cause you- yeah, we have this funny tradition in our small group. So I'm a, I'm a, not the best guitar player. But the nice thing about Johnny Cash and old gospel songs that we grew up singing is like it's, I think Willie Nelson said it's what, three chords in the truth. <laughs> you ever heard of that? You only need three chords. But that's also and a worship song, You can too. play a Johnny Cash song. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And so, I, I when I play the guitar, I like to sing gospel songs and Johnny Cash songs. Mm-hmm. And so, we have this funny tradition out in our small group where we call it Johnny Cash Christmas. So, we will get together on Christmas. We will sing Christmas carols out of a hymnal. Then I will pull out my guitar. And then we'll sing Cocaine Blues. Which... Uh, or, or Folsom Pleasant what, Blues. Yeah, so it's a very hilarious thing we do at Christmas in our small because group. Because a lot of times people are thinking about Christmas with the white powder on the ground, and they're thinking of snow. But when you're a Johnny Cash fan, it's a different white substance. Exactly. So that's one of the beauties of old JC. The, okay, the first question that came to my head, and this is my dad's first question as well, why, why would you write a book about Johnny Cash? But 
as I read the book a while ago, uh, I realized like this isn't just Johnny Cash. This is like his his art, his story, his life, but also your experience uh, in in the prisons that you've been in. Uh, doing, I should I should clarify that maybe or maybe not. But the the Bible studies that you've been doing for years, and I, I know in R- reviving old scratch that was kind of a, uh, a backstory in that as well. I mean that's that's part of. I wouldn't say it's part of everything you write, but it's definitely influencing a lot of what you write, and especially in this one because it's a guy who found so much uh, uh, commonality. I think uh, the line of the book is that he found found salvation with the damned. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, is you were a Johnny Cash fan before you were doing prison ministry, or you're doing prison ministry, and all of a sudden Johnny Cash's work becomes more meaningful to you? What's it's that one. So I started, yeah, so I didn't know a lot about Johnny Cash, but as, yeah, so I've been writing a lot over the last couple of years, and I think you just do that. You write about your story, and so the prison ministry has shown up a lot in my books, and I, I was just in a store, I was just in a record store here in town, and was just looking through, like, discount albums, and I saw um, At Folsom Prison, and I was like, oh, I, you know, that, that, that'd be kind of cool to listen. It's like a 20-minute drive out to the prison every week. So I said, I'll, I'll pop that in and just listen to this prison concert. And I think it was just something about listening, driving in West Texas landscapes, because nothing fits that landscape like Johnny Cash, and listening to that music and going into the prison and then listening to that concert on the way back, because it's a live concert. So you hear you hear the officers breaking in, you hear the prisoners screaming, you hear um, Cash complains about the prison water. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's you're inside it, and I think that's what makes the album so iconic. That I just got, I just got hooked. So I think I then bought at San Quentin, which was the follow-up album. And most people know that album because that's the album that has a, a boy named Sue on it. Mm-hmm. And and then from there, Robert Hilburn has written kind of the definitive biography of Cash. And so because of those albums, I was like, oh, I want to find out more about this guy. And I read the biography, and then just realized that how much there, there's two things mainly in the book, but like. So much of his life kind of articulated what I thought was the the gospel story, and those prison concerts are one part of that. It's just how God shows up in these – he shows up on the margins, and that's been my experience out at the prison where God has kind of met me behind closed – you know uh, closed doors, um, prison doors. And it's the same way kind of Johnny Cash, his his career was saved essentially by those prisoners at the at Folsom prison because that moment in his life 1967 like his career was kind of in the hole and he was just coming out of his addiction so his life was at this really precarious place like personally and musically and he had this idea that I'd film you know I'd, I'd record this concert in a prison and the response the enthusiastic response from the inmates is what makes that I album so iconic and so the argument i make in the book is like those prisoners saved him personally and professionally and it's my story and i think that's such a gospel story about how god shows up in kind of surprising locations i feel like we've had this conversation before but where you've talked about your faith in some way was revived by the what is the color of the uniform the I don't say the men in white. Men yeah, in white. Texas dresses their inmates. Yeah, Texas dresses their inmates all in white. Uh, so, so we call them the men in white. But the the men in white have helped save your faith as well. 
Yeah. So I, one of the reasons I went out to the prison um, years ago was because uh, my faith was really on a at an ebb. I mean, it was really at a low point. And so I kind of took Jesus at his, at his word in Matthew 25 that if you visit the incarcerated, you'll visit him. So I, kinda, I went out to the prison kind of looking for God. And that's that's what I found that the the. the the welcome, the gratitude, the embrace of the prisoners, the friendships that we've developed over the years. I'm, I mean, tonight is Monday night. I'll be out there tonight, and I can't wait to be out there. And so I give them credit to for kind of saving my faith. And I kind of saw that in Johnny Cash's story, too, and that's where you kind of get that blend of his story and mine mixed in the book. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, I, you know, the ministry that I've been doing to um, Jonathan Storman has been the same thing to me. Like, it's... <laughs> Reaching out to him has helped me. Makes me appreciate what I have. Same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's... Uh, the uh, the first illustration I used in my sermon about Johnny Cash, this is probably four or five months ago, was the heartbreaking story that you tell in the book about uh, Johnny's younger brother, Jack's uh, tragic passing away from an incident mm-hmm. with uh, uh, lumber saw, head saw, I forget. Yeah, a saw. Yeah, a circular saw cut his cut his abdomen open. Yeah, it, it, it's gruesome, macabre as you can uh, only imagine. And so he fights for his life for a few days. Eventually, doesn't make it. And there is this level of guilt because uh, Johnny Cash had tried to get him to go fishing with him, um, couldn't get him to go. When he's when Cash is coming back home, his father is in the preacher's car and tells him to get in the car, and then he gets home, and then his dad takes him out and shows him this bloody scene of his brother's ripped-in-half, blood-drenched uh, clothing, and he carries with him from that moment the sense that his father thinks it's his fault that his brother died, and his brother was uh, his hero. He looked up to him. You know, His dad, I don't know if he's ever said that was his favorite kid, but it sure came across that way. And so he carries with him this guilt of his brother's death with him. And there's a quote that you have uh, in the book, I believe, in which his daughter says, after that kind of pain, either uh, great evil or great art is going to come out of it. Do you buy into that mentality that from great pain like that, you, you have the option of either turning really dark or turning or it becoming somehow something very bright? No, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think most great art comes out of suffering um i mean there i don't i think there are very few artists out there why do you think that is who produce well i think because suffering takes you to the edges of human experience and and if it's not great suffering that produces great art artists tend to be outsiders because if you're kind of in the flow of things if you're in the middle of the herd you're not offering any a distinctive perspective to anybody and so either you're an outsider a little bit different a little bit weird a little bit unusual eccentric so artists tend to be kind of people on the edges they they just don't think the same way everybody else does they connect the dots differently and that gives them a perspective, an ability to kind of see things that the rest of us can't see because we're in the mm-hmm. – it's like that It's that joke about the two fish in the water, you know, and the older fish swims by and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they look to each other and say, what the hell is water? I mean, I think normal life is like that. We are so embedded in the in the assumptions and the values um, uh, of the day that, that it takes somebody on the outside to kind of notice what should be obvious to everybody but isn't. So artists – either because of their eccentricity or because of their suffering or are the people that are kind of out on the edges and the limits. And because of that, they bring us messages back from those frontiers. 
about what is most important or what is most meaningful uh, to us. And uh, uh, but unfortunately, that if you're also out there on the edges, one can become lost. Right? You can maybe never make your way back with a message of hope, and so it's dangerous being out there. And so you can be so eccentric to lose touch with reality. And so there's this sense that artists can also be right. Um, uh, the, the kind of the, the mad artist out there, they can lose touch. They can get too far out out there, or the suffering could take could debilitate us, and so the suffering creates such despair and depression that um, I, I I can't gather up enough energy um, or passion to 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 write or create the story I need to write and create. So it's interesting how a lot of artists are manic depressives. Um, because the depression kind of takes them into the suffering, but the mania gives them the ability to write it all down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and so it's interesting how they they you all you, you kind of need the energy to return or the healing to be able to return back with with the story and the message. Um, yeah, and somehow those who come back are able to have this this beautiful picture or or in faith languages they can they can come back from suffering with this limp that creates like this unique gate that offers something to the rest of the world uh, others never seem to be able to walk again sometimes you go through adversity and whatever happens to use that the metaphor of, of god wrestling with abram that this this hip injury prevents him from being uh able to walk the same but he can continue to walk but not everyone can can still walk after suffering does it make sense and yeah. it would be impossible for there to be one unifying factor that enables everyone to kind of go through suffering and have their faith improved, to have this sort of, uh, you know, James letter in the New Testament about how uh, faith is something that's good for you because it transforms you and gives you better character and hope. But not everyone gets there. Like sometimes we go through adversity and suffering and it just is great evil that comes from it in us. D- do you see something like a thread that's, that's woven between stories of people who've gone through suffering that turns it well. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's a lever that one pulls to make it turn out well, because I think you're right. I think sometimes we can kind of glorify the suffering and, and there's some things that are just, um, they don't, they don't get a happy ending and there's no bow to put on it. And sometimes when we try to force those stories of suffering into some moral story that fits well on a sermon or, you know, like we try to turn it into a great anecdote that, that it, it does, it, it needs to stay as it is, is kind of kind of a raw experience of pain. And so, so you need to be careful um, with that um, and uh, to force people to kind of tell you a happy ending when it's not a happy ending. Um, but it, what's great about that, to kind of come back to the Johnny Cash, is that he sings this song, perhaps the song he's most known for now, especially among younger people, is that cover he did of Hurt, Trent Reznor's yeah. song, Hurt. And if you just listen to that song, a lot of people say that song is like one of the saddest songs, or the video that he cut was like one of the yeah. saddest videos they've ever seen. And um, and it and I think it's because it, that song really doesn't have a happy ending. It's it's just about the hurt that he's experienced, the losses that he's so he, he talks about how much he's hurt other people. He talks about how everybody I know goes away in the end. So the losses that accumulate over time and, uh, and, and a lot of people resonate with that. So if there's any gospel in that, it's not in the happy ending, but it is a kind of 
grace in our shared humanity and so that the suffering that we have maybe isn't um, an inspirational story, but the fact that our suffering can be mingled together and shared is is where we find the gospel in it. Not in the pain, but in the in the kind of the community of pain that we we share, the democracy of suffering, I guess, um, that we're not alone in yeah. it. I like that idea of democ- democracy of suffering, the democratization of suffering. Uh, I've, I've got a, a personality that doesn't lend itself to sitting in sadness all the time. If you want to be an Enneagram person, you can easily diagnose that. But at, the older I get, the more I find myself having to do that uh, and to sit into those things. And music does that in a way that uh, nothing else really has been able to do for me. And I've got a friend whose daughter uh, says, you know, sometimes when you're just sad, don't you want to just turn on a sad movie and just get a good cry in? And my thought was like, no, I, I never I never want to do that. But a song, a three-minute song or four-minute song, uh, is something that uh, does that for me. And even before, you know, I, I read this book, in my sad playlist, the song Hurt was on there because it's such a uh, an amazing uh, description of the emptiness and the vanity of life. And I think mm-hmm. the, the video for it really encapsulates that. I think it's actually set in a now like closed uh, Johnny Cash museum somewhere. And so you see all this. Is that right? It's a museum. Yeah, I think I think it was the House of Cash, which was kind of his the museum he ran, kind of celebrating his career. And so by the time of the video, it had fallen into like a shocking state of disrepair. So you get this image of all of the all the kind of awards and the gold records and the things, you know, of, of a celebrity career kind of in a state of decay. Yeah. And you see this aged man looking back over his life and you just, yeah, it's Ecclesiastes, yep. vanity of vanity. There's another song of his that uh, speaks to me in a similar fashion. It's, uh, I think it's called uh, Hung My Head. And it tells mm-hmm. a story of this guy who, it seems like by chance, just shoots and kills someone for no reason and it kind of walks through like this this painful story and he tells the story like he's actually done this like it, it's a first person story and obviously cash hasn't done that but i'm wondering if the kind of the guilt and the shame that he's carried with him from his brother jack's passing is almost what fuels that sort of shame that he can tell that story because in a sense he has done something that's so awful that it, yeah, it can be fleshed out in this other person's you know fictionalized story, but he always carries that with him, and maybe that's what he invites us into is to democratize our suffering because we all bring our own kind of pain, and he can push it through this filter that his music like lets us see, but we we all have it, and we need to connect with one another. You think that's probably like what that longing is? Yeah, I, yeah, I think so because I, I think we all detect that in ourselves. I mean, he sang tons of songs about. Um, grief and regret. He, he sang lots of songs about murder. Um, and, and I think the, the I mean, I, obviously the, the pain that he experienced with his brother's death um, put it, put a darkness in him that kind of came out really early. I mean, we first get a sense of it in um, Folsom prison blues. Cause there's a kind of a line in there that, uh, which is I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And at the time they didn't even know if they could say something like that on the radio. And again, that's a line. So think about the music that's being pumped out around there. This is like the the mid fifties. So Elvis is ascendant. Jerry Lee Lewis is doing great balls of fire. And then there's this guy 
who says, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. I mean, that's like a really modern line. That's like a line you'd catch in like modern modern music, something, yeah. a cold-blooded reference to murder. And he's saying that in the mid-50s. And you're like, well, where did that darkness come from? And, and I think a lot of it came from the suffering he had with his brother. And that, that just wove its way all the way through his career. And so he was this weird mixture in his music and in his person. And that's the interesting thing about Cash. In his music, he would mix these gospel songs with these murder ballads. And so that's in the title, Trains Jesus and Murder. I play with that juxtaposition of the murder ballad juxtaposed with the gospel hymn in the very same concert or album. But that was the thing that you saw in his life. He was, um, many, many said he was a caring, loving, kind human being. But then when he was on drugs and dealing with his drug addiction, he was, he was terrible. Mm-hmm. And he, was the, he himself was a very flawed person. He, he walked with a limp. And, um, and I think, I think I, again, gives voice to all of that suffering he caused in hurt at the end of his career, looking back at it. And I think anybody that has looked in the mirror or has any degree of self-awareness realizes that in themselves, they, we all have great capacities for kindness, love, and goodness. And yet all of us have great capacities for cruelty and hurt, even the people we love the most. And so there's something about the authenticity of that. So this is what the Christian, the, Lu- the Lutheran idea that we are all saints and we're all sinners in a very complex mixture. All the time, right? I'm, I'm out there with, right, with inmates at a maximum security prison. Like I, I do a Bible study with murderers. And, but I see good things in them. So in one sense, I find God in this dark place. And then I come out here in the free world and I see people that, you know, they're not criminals, they're not felons, but do extraordinarily cruel things to each other. And so the line that divides good and evil, um, what's that? It runs, be- that- it, runs be- it, uh, it isn't between us and them, it's down, down the center of the human heart. Yeah, I think Johnny Cash's music is just one great testimony to that truth, that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. I, I love a title that you get from your kids. And uh, I think this one you got from Aiden, who said, isn't, isn't yeah. all Johnny Cash sings about? But it's this mixture, and you have an anecdote about him uh, one day having his car uh, get messed up at the window because someone dropped like a rock or a brick on it as he was driving. He gets out, and he forgives the kid who did this. And so he could do something that magnanimous as, you know, forgiving someone who, who like, destroyed his car, but at the, at the same time, he can write some really otherwise awful lyrics but it, like you said that's kind of the human the human experience that it, it's kind of in all of us and it seems like his most famous song is uh, uh i walk the line which was supposed to be like yeah. this like love song to his first wife saying that i'm always gonna be faithful i'm not gonna be like elvis or whoever else is this famous musician who's running around with all of his fans and and being unfaithful and uh there's a great line from Merle Haggard that you have in the book where he says, you know, Johnny Cash is many things, but someone who walked the line is not one of them. Like, he did a lot of things, <laughs> but he was never faithful. Like, that is, this is a song that he should never be singing. But in some ways, that's what Cash's appeal is, is that he's someone who, he's like all of us. Like, we want to be one kind of person, but we're not. We, we don't live up to it because we're this mixture of saint and sinner. Yeah, and, and I, I talk about even in the book about how there's like a even a deeper level of meaning to it. Yeah, but it was written. I walked the line. It was written for his wife Vivian, his first wife Vivian, 
um, because she was obviously worried about him being faithful on the road. So he sang I Walk the Line as this kind of ode of fidelity to, you know, to her. Um, but yeah, never didn't really walk the line. And, and, and I go on to say that that he that Sam Phillips, the the the, the producer of Sun's Studios, um, always kept fighting Cash. Cash wanted to because he wanted to honor his brother Jack's memory. Jack was going to be a preacher, so Cash had made Jack a promise after his death that he was going to be a gospel music singer. So he kept trying to push Sam Phillips to record gospel music, but Phillips would never let him do it. But late in his life, Cash said, my first gospel hit was I Walk the Line, because it was um, a crypto-spiritual song. Like, it was got his pledge to of fidelity to God. But to your point, I mean— he he broke those promises as well. He wasn't faithful to Vivian. He wasn't faithful to God. And I think in his story, we see, yes, ourselves reflected that we we promise to walk the line for God, for each other. And yet we look back at our lives as a series of failures in that regard. So there's something human about his story um, and his struggles that I think make him an extraordinarily sympathetic figure to many of us. So, so the story behind uh, that song is that he wanted to record it slow and the pace that he was wanting, but then the, yeah. uh, the guy from was Sun Record made him record one fast one, and then he uh, releases that one without telling Cash, and Cash hears on the radio and goes, oh, that's, that's not the one I wanted. But it seemed like there's always this tension of who Cash wants to be and then who the record label or who like society want, like feels like they they desire him to be and like his name didn't they change his name to johnny cash wasn't it he, he never went by that before yeah his his first name his given birth name was jr so they called him jr and then he went to the air force and he called himself john but then uh sun records called him johnny because he was a he was a rockabilly star so johnny cash and to be fair johnny cash is a great name so the I mean, was, yeah, yeah, that's not no, a bad. They, they did right on that, but they're always pulling him to be something that he didn't want to be, and yeah, and that's—I mean—that's an interesting point too, because some people might find it a little bit obscene to look for the gospel in a commercial artist, right? Like, can't like if the gospel is being filtered through somebody who's trying to sell a product to a culture, can they really be preaching the gospel faithfully? Um, and. And so what's it, what I, one of the stories I tell in the story, one of the stories I tell in the book is how early on in his career, he, he wrote this song called Give My Love to Rose. And it, he had had his first wave of hits, A Walk the Line, uh, Folsom Prison Blues, but he couldn't find the next big hit. And so they were giving him songs to cover. So songs he wasn't writing. And they were all these kind of teeny bopper songs for the jukeboxes. But he just felt really disconnected from the music. And so he writes this song, Give My Love to Rose, about an ex-convict who dies on the railroad tracks. And again, that's not a song that's going to sell. No. right? Like teenagers don't want to listen to a song about an ex-con who dies on the railroad tracks. No. Like It's just not an, an uplifting song. But this song, I argue in the book, kind of made him Johnny Cash. Because he he kind of realized with that song who he was going to be as an artist. And it started a tradition with him that when he had a song that was really meant for audiences, right? Well, you're, like, you're talking about like the, 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 the person they always wanted him to be to be popular and sell records. He would call those Johnny Cash songs. 
but songs that like he wrote that he knew weren't going to have a lot of commercial appeal, but they kind of really spoke to, to his vision, like Give My Love to Rose, and they weren't going to have a lot of commercial appeal. He called those JR songs, songs that went back to his his roots. So that was like one of his first JR songs. So he he kind of made it, and I think a lot of artists are like that. I think a lot of artists, you have a lot of artists on your on your podcast, they struggle that with that issue. I, I got to be to one degree commercial enough to pay the rent, but I can't. And so I'll do some stuff to do that. And you may even as a preacher have to do that, right? There might be some sermons I have to do to keep my job. That's, you know? I think that's completely blasphemous <laughs> to say that about a preacher. But yeah, these other heathens. But it, yeah, of course. Then. But at some point, though, you're going to say, but I'm going to burn that capital to, to do something true. But that's like the, and that's, like the pastoral and prophetic. Exactly. Like, yeah, that's exactly Yeah, I mean, you have to be understanding of like who you're talking to and who your audience is. And so Johnny Cash knew that he's got to pay the bills and do some of the teeny bopper songs that aren't close to his heart, but he also wants to something that's uh, that's most authentic to him. And when you're talking about the, uh, the gospel and commercial, the first thing that came to my mind was what was released on Friday morning, which I don't know if you were listening to it, but Kanye West has a new... Album out. He has what Jesus, Jesus is King. Is King. I, I I don't know how much hip hop you're listening to these days. I think N.T. Wright could have wrote the title of that. that you know, album. my friend uh, Tom probably could have helped him. <laughs> Honestly, I think Johnny uh, Johnny Cash would be proud of Kanye, but I think Kanye would be even more proud that Tom Wright would appreciate his title. Um, th- yeah. Uh, so when he has this album out, there's been a little bit of a kerfuffle about him and his ability to do this, and who's he? F- who is he trying to be, and what's going on with him? But it's the same question of like, can you have a commercially selling pop star, which that's what Johnny Cash was, doing a gospel album? And I, I'm flabbergasted on like what, what I should think about this album. What I do know is my kids love the song in which he uses, uh, you're my Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A. Uh, there's that line. Yeah, I heard that. That's quite a rhyme. Yeah, closed on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> have you listened to the Kanye album? I have listened. I've listened to it on iTunes. I have not purchased the whole thing mm-hmm. yet. Is it good? Is it worth I it? Mean, when I think, is it going to show up on? on when I think of hip hop gurus, I think of you and me. So I think our opinion on this is the definitive one. <laughs> yeah, people are tuning in for our opinions about. Kanye. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a hot take on it. I, there's some songs that I like. I, I've liked Kanye's older stuff more than his more recent stuff, and he is a conundrum which I will never. I think people will be writing books about Kanye for a long time just because he is so confusing. When you talk about eccentric artists, like I was talking about before, he's he's one of those guys, yeah. right? I mean, he's just a little bit different and off, and you know, he's 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 unpredictable. You know, what's what makes him fascinating? Yeah. And I assume that Johnny Cash was that to people before, because I, I was trying to workshop these sermons with my focus group on Thursday before I preach in a three Johnny Cash references. And I remember asking people, what, what do you think about Johnny Cash? Who, do people know who he is? Just because I, like, as, I didn't really know much about him, but people with more years than me were like, yeah, I mean, he is, he was the guy at one point for his time. Like everyone knew Johnny Cash. And so I imagine everyone knew him and had a picture of what he should be. And he never seemed to walk there. There it is. Walk the line of what everyone wanted him to be. <laughs> and he was able to, 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 to do multiple things and wear multiple hats. Yeah, and I think you have to fight for some stuff. I mean, one of the things I, I talk about in the in the book is like his fight for the album but Bitter Tears. So he wrote this whole album about the Native American experience. Mm-hmm. 
And it's all, I mean, if you listen to it, I, I call it liberation theology, according to Johnny Cash, because he, he basically reads American history through the lens of indigenous native peoples. And it's not pretty. Like there, there's a, it, it is a tough listen. Um, and it, it wasn't getting a lot of, not surprisingly, not getting a lot of airplay. And he had to fight. He took out a whole page in Billboard. And I think the top line was like, you know, record you know, studio owners and record producers and DJs, where are your guts? That's how he started it off. And he basically just called out the entire industry for being gutless, for refusing to listen to the message of At Bitter Tears. Um, and so, yeah, so there, there, so there were moments when he had to really kind of fight for an artistic vision um, because of it really mattered to him that, that that record did. And a lot of people look back at it. I would say it's one of his the best examples of Johnny Cash kind of speaking for the margins of society and, and using his uh, art to try to do something, you know, bigger than art. And that's the, that's the problematic part about social justice these days. And obviously that's years before when he was doing, uh, putting that album out, but there are some social justice issues that you can get on and there's a soapbox you can stand upon and say certain things and it'll get a lot of, uh, notoriety and people will follow you and people will think, oh, that's great. And I want to like retweet what you say, but you say other things and it just goes, you know, church mouse quiet because uh, it, it's too uncomfortable. It's too painful. It's too trying. And that's the balance of being prophetic is that sometimes prophetic looks like just regurgitating what everyone else is already feeling right now. So you could have this hot take that everyone else has been saying for years, but you say, and everyone's like, oh yeah, I get behind that. But then you make a comment about how indigenous people are treated in America and then no one wants to listen to that. And that's, and I think that's what good artists can do is they have the margin to be able to speak for things that others aren't willing to hear or they're not ready to hear. Yeah. And the other thing about Cash too is that like even is, is a lot of the stuff he did early in his career. So he did these live concert prisons. Nobody was doing that. Um, so that you know the Beatles are playing their music and Johnny Cash is singing in a prison. And so like like he's using his art really differently. And he does a whole album about you know on bitter tears. Um, he he did a whole album called uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears about the kind of the, the American kind of working class. So, I mean, he was, he was doing some fascinating things with his art. But then he kind of went mainstream. He, he kind of became real popular. He got a, a variety show on TV, the Johnny Cash show. And I think when they give you a variety show, your career is about over with the younger generation. That's, and so that's the, the antiquated version of being on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, yeah. And so in the 80s, that's kind of his lost decade. And so he was still pumping out music, but... Really, nobody was listening, and eventually he gets dropped by his label. Um, and so what's interesting about Cash's career, he's, he's actually had two different careers. He had this early career that we know. Um, but then in the 90s, Rick Rubin, From hip- who had been— He's a hip-hop guy. He's a hip-hop guy, Beastie Boys, Al Cool J. And he starts producing a washed-up country icon in Johnny Cash, and they produced four albums that were huge critical and commercial successes. One best folk album, Grammy, one best country album for a Grammy. And, and, and you know, again, the, that's the music of Hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it, it was uh, Ruben's idea to get Cash to sing a Nine Inch Nails song. I don't think Johnny Cash knew who Trent Nine Inch Nails was. Yeah, and... 
and then this is also the era of uh, Rusty Cage and Delia's Gone and I Hung My Head and uh, When the Man Comes Around. It's a good one. So yeah, like two different. Yeah, so in many ways, Ruben kind of helped him re- regain his authenticity. Uh, and I think a lot of people, younger people especially, like my college students, when they think of Johnny Cash, they're thinking that's of good, yeah. the American recordings, Johnny Cash, of the Rick Rubin yep. years. Yeah, and that's that would have been what I first went to as well. Um, because I'm a few years younger than the people in the 60s who <laughs> were really loving him. But yeah, no, uh, two careers for sure. And he, he has this interesting play so like it, the idea of him going to the prison still is flabbergasting to me that he shows up and he says you know hello i'm you know let's let's sing some songs or whatever he said to start the, the album i forget what it was but just his presence being there is uh, you talk about like this like the idea of incarnation that his it's his love incarnate and there's a story you tell in the book about uh, one of the guys in white the men in white excuse me who the idea of a, a father saying "I love you" or anyone saying that to him is not in his experience. Which honestly, that's Johnny Cash's experience as well. His father's never really said that to him, according to one quote. And the idea of incarnation is that it, it shows up, it's present, it comes into your prison and says, I, "I'm going to offer something to you." And I feel like that's the most compelling thing about Johnny Cash is that he has this complex uh, life that's. You know, some of it's Johnny, some of it's Jr. Some of it is beautiful, some of it is awful. Uh, some of it's life, some of it's addiction. But he continues to try to like show up and to speak into things. And when he was with the um, uh, the album about the native the uh, the Native American experiences, didn't he get some special honor? And they they gave him some uh, honorific designation as someone who like. Uh, yeah, I think they gave him a name in their native tongue. One of the one of the tribes gave him the the name storyteller. And so he has this presence that he has because he's he's shown up in these other places, and I think that's a beautiful picture of what what love is attempting to do in its best moments that it it just shows up. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the big theme. the 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 biggest chunk of the book is kind of called "Sinners in Solidarity," and and we go through all these different locations where his music is showing solidarity. So with Native Americans, with prisoners, with the working class. Um, with the addicts, uh, you know, I have a whole section on his struggles with addiction, and it's built around the the song "Sunday Morning Coming Down," which Chris Christopherson wrote and Cash covered. Um, so he's just showing showing solidarity with all these different kinds of people. But I think to your point, it wasn't just that he wrote these songs; he would, like physically show up. He he played concerts on Indian reservations for their t- to benefit their causes. He showed up in prisons on makeshift stages and cafeterias. And I think, yeah, that's that's that that is a an example to follow. That that a lot of I think my biggest struggle with Christianity sometimes is just how verbal it is. It's like if we can just say the right words in in our so for me it'd be like my books right for you it's your podcast or your books right it, or right if we could just say the right words and maybe it's somebody out there on Twitter you know to say the right words on Twitter and then Christianity just becomes words just yeah. words and and your point about incarnation is it's like where you put your body um where, where are you physically locating yourself and and and. And that's the step I think we don't ever get. We, we, we talk a lot, but very 
very rarely do we like show up physically in different locations. Um, and, I, and I think if we just did that, if we just made an intentional effort to ask ourselves, where, where do I need to put myself? Where, who do I need to stand next to? I'm not even saying do anything. I'm not talking about serving or I'm not charity or benevolent. I'm just like physically just put yourself in a new location. And that's really the story of why I ended up at the prison. I, I looked around my, my life and I realized like everybody I know is like exactly like me. And I, I need to just put myself in a radically different social location. And so I put myself out at the prison and, 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 Maybe that's not available for lots of people, but I think we can all show up in different parts of our city. Well, there's my fourth sermon illustration from Johnny Cash that I will be using within this calendar year. Because it's it's incarnation story. It's the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is the the Christmas story that we tell every year that this is what God has done. God has appeared and to be one of us. And it's Uh I feel like that's the invitation that all of us are invited into where we're asked don't just give us a word like don't just you know retweet something just don't post something but actually you know be present and it's it's messy and i think that's part of the beauty of the albums that he recorded in prisons is that they they didn't have the you know the the picture perfect sound quality of a studio album that there are interruptions there's people yelling there's one time where he says um i'm recording this and he makes some joke and says a explicit word that he would have not been allowed to say (laughs) <laughs> and you hear the interaction, and part of the messiness of the incarnation is what makes it so compelling, and that's part of what those albums were. They're so compelling because you hear the the life that's inside of them. Of you have these this really complex person surrounded by very complex people in a complex environment where there's a tension between guards and uh, and, and the inmates, and how that all works. And I don't know. I feel like that's the kind of risk that creates this this beauty that people are invited into that wow this is very complex it's not simplistic but there's something compelling about it yeah Yeah. speaking of risk my favorite example of that is on the san quentin album i tell this in this in the book about how if you look at the track listing on the at san quentin album there's a song called san quentin and it's it's listed twice back to back which seems weird but but that's what happened he sang the song and then he sang it again. And the reason why he sang it again is if you listen to the song San Quentin, it's again, it's not a this is not a commercial song. Nobody's going to go, oh, my goodness, San Quentin is my all time favorite Johnny Cash song. I mean, it, it's just it might not even be the greatest. It's not a great song. It's a pretty simple song. But the lyrics, it begins with San Quentin. I hate. No, no, San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. Um, and there's another line that says San Quentin, may you rot and burn in hell. I mean, it's just, it's just line after line of him just – and he's singing this in San Quentin. I mean, the guards are standing there. The warden's watching on. And he's just singing this song about, I hate – you've been living hell to me. I hate every inch of you. May you rot and burn in hell. And the prisoners are just going nuts. Yeah. And so when he ends it, they just freak. They stand up on the tables, breaking the rules. They demand he sing it again. And so he does. He sings it again. And at the end of the second singing – the room got so loud and so intense, they thought or like a riot was going to break out. And and Cash was retrospectively, he said he was tempted that if he had said, let's go, they would have been a complete full-scale riot. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was a really risky thing for him to do. Maybe not the wisest thing to do. But I think one of the reasons why I love that moment about Johnny Cash is because 
the room was so explosive because he had been able to articulate their pain and their anger and their outrage. Mm-hmm. He, he had gave voice to it. And again, that's just a very different look into this issue of solidarity, that solidarity isn't always sweet and nice. It can be a stinging prophetic rebuke uh, using your power like he had power um, that the prisoners didn't have. And he used his power to say something about the prison industrial complex and its ineffectiveness and its inhumanity that those prisoners couldn't say. And when he said it, they freaked because they heard their pain in his lyrics. Yeah. I I can find that to be artistically compelling, and I can find the beauty of it to be uh, substantial. I think partly because I don't have any connection to the crimes that those gentlemen committed that caused them to be in San Quentin. And it's easy for me to humanize their plight and to follow the command of Jesus to see in our treatment of prisoners our ability to treat Jesus. I can see that because I don't have any firsthand experience of being a victim of the crimes that those people committed. I wonder, and this, I didn't read this anywhere in the book, but I wonder how many people found Johnny Cash to be repugnant because they could see something that one of those prisoners did to their family members or friends and go, why are you, why are we celebrating these people and their criminal behavior and the plight that they're in and how hard it is for them? And the reason they're in that is because they murdered someone or they killed someone or they took someone's uh, innocence. And to celebrate these people is to minimize what the victims went through. Yeah, I mean, he faced that. He became a big uh, – he even testified in front of the Congress. Uh, so after those albums, he became a big national voice uh, speaking about prison reform. And obviously, um, that question came up, and he got a lot of pushback from victims. Like, why is he always speaking up, sticking up for the prisoner and not for um, the victims of the crimes? Um you know, and his argument was that if that that if we if we were more humane to prisoners, if we re- rehabilitated people, there would be there would ultimately be less victims. Now, I don't know how encouraging that is to victims, but I, I definitely think that was a criticism he faced, and I think I worry about that. I, I speak so much about prisoners, and I try to humanize them so much in my book that I I, I do worry. It's not it's not like a, it's not a worry that. Um, is, is lost on me that that for every man I go in there and visit tonight that there is a there is a victim out there um, that I need to be praying for and um, caring for as much as the incarcerated and again that's I think that's the part of the gospel it is like you kept saying it's complicated it is complicated I I, I, I um, but if we keep coming back to that idea that saints and sinners, run in it all of like we're all saint and sinner that that there might be a way for us to kind of find our way back to each other instead of dividing the world up between kind of the victims and the victimizers uh sometimes that might be fairly straightforward but sometimes it's really complicated because here's the thing you know i go talk to these guys that in prison and okay some of them might be sociopaths let's say but most of them if you listen to their stories they were abused you know they they were sexually abused. They were physically abused. They they had you know they they are not they yes they victimize people but they, they there is a cycle of victimhood going on and and I don't know how we stop it 
um, but but uh, it's it's not so clean to walk out there and listen to the story of one of the guys out here in prison and say um, like that guy I told you guy who never heard his family ever say he loved him or anything like that. It's it's not it's 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 a hard complicated thing to walk. Um, mm. And uh, I think we just got to just keep reaching for grace for each other, uh, and, and 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 keep listening to each other. Uh, listen, keep listening to each other's stories on both sides on both sides of that divide. Um, I think that's what restorative justice is trying to accomplish out in the prison systems, you know, to, to, and there's lots of good work out there that are trying, that are bringing victims into prisons and beginning processes of reconciliation. There's a lot of great work out there being done on that very topic. Well, that's, it's much needed. Uh, it definitely, I, I think the call of Jesus is always going to be complicated and it's easy to side with one person in the story. Like, the perpetu- yeah. uh, perpetrator, the victim, whoever. Um, but I think some, something about Jesus is that he's able to see the value and the dignity in both sides. And I'm not there yet, but I feel like that's what you know Jesus is calling us to. And and I think that's what, you know, to some degree, I think th- that's what your story of with, with the men in white, that's what Johnny Cash's story uh, of, of these songs, I think some of it does that. It, it kind of helps us get to seeing... To see the other as no longer just the other, but as someone who is like you. So, mm-hmm. yeah. well, uh, the book "Train Jesus Trains Jesus in Murder: The Gospel According to Johnny Cash" by Richard Beck. It's, it's going to be out now. There's another book, uh, another biography by a pastor in California about Johnny Cash. And for as much as I think Johnny Cash doesn't want us to victimize or to uh, to to ostracize the other, um, I think we should ostracize the other person's book. And say, yeah, make sure you buy the right yeah, Johnny Cash. Yours book is the only one that really right matters. Now. No one else matters. <laughs> uh, this is it. So just go get this one. <laughs> Thanks for checking Thanks, out Luke. Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.